everyone, it's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival, and in today's podcast on legal firearms defense, we're joined by Peyton Quinn of StressShooting.com to answer our questions about how to protect yourself, not just from the criminals that you may face in an attack, but also from the legal system after an attack. Now, this is an area few people even consider or even realize that is just about as big a threat as the attack itself. So listen in, take notes, and we've got a great show for you. Check this out. If bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging, would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? firearms training urban survival close quarters combat this this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot this is modern combat and survival when it comes to using deadly force to defend yourself and your loved ones from an attacker especially if you're a responsible gun owner you must understand this one truth that so many people ignore that the legal system is not about justice. It's about the law, plain and simple. If you're ever involved in a deadly encounter, your actions will be on trial from the moment law enforcement responds to your call until a jury pronounces you guilty or not guilty of murder and possibly sends you off to prison for simply defending those you love from the brutal predator that decided to target you. Now, I know it sounds insane to think that you could go to prison, forced to live among the violent scum of society for doing what you thought was right, even if you were the one being attacked. But the God's honest truth is that you do not have to commit a crime to be convicted of one. You must know your legal rights, as well as the legal rights of your attacker, as crazy as that may sound, in order to avoid being found guilty of a crime and yet still protect yourself and those you love. And that's what we're here to help you understand right now. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor of Modern Combat and Survival Magazine, with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. And joining us today is a good friend of mine and someone who has dug deeply into not only the criminal mindset to help you know how to defeat them in an attack, but he's also done extensive research into the jury mindset to help you know how to survive a potential court battle should you ever have to use deadly force. Please welcome my buddy, Peyton Quinn. Peyton, thanks for talking to us today. Glad to be here, Jeff. Now, although Peyton is not an attorney, and let me be, let me be clear, we are not giving you legal advice. Seek out an attorney for that. There, I covered my legal ass right there. Uh, Peyton, though, is a real legend in the combatives industry. And in fact, Peyton is seen as a true pioneer in training for how to effectively use what we call reality-based self-defense strategies, as well as firearms tactics in light of your body's natural response to life or death scenarios and what's called adrenal stress response. He's produced several DVDs and books on these topics and runs several training camps each year. You can find out more about his training and his schedule at his website at www.stressshooting.com. Now, Peyton, when responding to a potential threat using deadly force, one of the factors a court is going to look at to decide if you took the right action is whether a threat was immediate. So what exactly does this mean? And can you give an example of when a response is not considered immediate and one where the use of force is considered immediate? Absolutely, Jeff. Immediate means that if you do not act to save your life immediately, you're going to be killed or suffer serious injury. Uh, 
So let me give you an example of immediate. Uh, <clears throat> you get in an alter verbal altercation with someone at a bar somewhere. He takes a swing at you. You knock him down. And then he pulls out a knife and jumps up and says, I'm going to cut your guts out, you son of a bitch. Well, that is an immediate threat. But uh, <clears throat> let me give you a non-immediate threat. You, same situation. He gets up, points his finger at you after you've knocked him down or whatever. He says, you son of a bitch, I'm going home. I'm going to get my gun. I'm going to come back here and blow your brains out. That threat is not immediate. And uh, no action is justified on your, your part. Let me give two principles of law. And I'm not an attorney, but these are, the law is generally consistent and congruent. Uh, but also somewhat ambiguous. Here's a general principle of how you can successfully uh, make a self-defense claim after an incident and the three things you need to have. To establish self-defense, one, you must be free of fault or provocation. Two, you must have no means of escape or retreat. And three, there must be an impending peril of grievous grievous injury. So let's let's quickly look at that. One, you must be free from fault or provocation. If this this is the concept of consensual combat. If somebody say, you get in an argument and he says, "Come on, let's go outside and settle it." If you accept his invitation, you have lost all claim to a self defense defense. If you consent to fight then you can't later claim self-defense. So if somebody says, let's go outside and settle it, and during the fight he, you hit him and his head hits the wall and he's killed, you're definitely going to prison. You can't claim self-defense. Two, you must have no means of escape or retreat. The law requires you to try to avoid conflict. Uh, and three, there must be an impending peril of grievous injury. Now, the second principle Two, and this is an important one to understand, what would a reasonable man do given the situation and knowing what he knew at the time? That's how you will be judged under law, Jeff. Yeah. Peyton, and, and all of those lend into the immediacy of, of the threat. So, I mean, if you can, you know, it's not immediate if you can walk away from it and not get provoked into it. So that makes total sense. Peyton, I can think of instances where people have gotten into fights and, and heavy words are spoken. Something as common as, like, I'm going to kick your ass or I'm going to blow your damn head off. But big words don't always necessitate the use of force unless that threat is what is considered actionable in the court's eyes. So what does the legal system require for a threat to be actionable? And can you give us a good example each of a scenario where someone would not be legally justified to use force under this test and one where someone would be justified? Okay. Basically, actionable is a legal word for he can do it. He's able to do it. He's able to actualize his threat. Actionable basically means that a reasonable man, knowing what he knew at the time, would think the threatening person had the immediate means to realize his threat and injure or kill him. Again, the idea of what you knew at the time is important here. Okay, Jeff, you took the course a year or so ago, mm -hmm. and you saw that from 23 feet away, a person could draw a knife, 
charge you and kill you very often before you can draw your gun from concealment and stop it. Arguably, even further than that. I mean, we were, you, you know, four, it could be 40 or 50 feet and somebody can quickly close that distance. That's absolutely true. So you're knowing that. Remember, the law will turn on knowing what he knew at the time. Well, now that you've seen that, you know that. So if a guy was 23 feet away or whatever and pulled a knife and said, I'll kill you and starts moving towards you, you are fully justified because you know the threat is immediate and actionable. You're, you would be legally justified in using lethal force. In general, you can only use that force that is necessary to stop the threat. In this case, it's a imminent uh, threat of being stabbed to death, so lethal force shooting him in the center of mass is legally justified. What about a situation? Uh, let's look at one that's not legally. Yeah, or, exactly. It's yeah. not act actionable. Uh, a guy's in a wheelchair, and you turn around and bump into him, and he says, I'm tired of this shit. I'm going to cut your guts out. And he pulls out a big knife. That's not an actionable threat. That is a reasonable man, and that's what the jury is uh, taxed with. Uh, wouldn't think that was a immediate threat because you could outrun a wheelchair. In other words, you could escape or avoid it. So if you shot the man in the wheelchair, even though he had a knife in his hand and was threatening you, since that threat is not immediately actionable, your self-defense claim is going to be uh, very weak if existent at all. Okay, as you can see, everyone, uh, the, the legal aspects of being able to defend yourself is not so cut and dry as you might think. And we're going to be back to talk about some more of the legal aspects of defending yourself and those that you love here in just a minute. But first, check out this message. Are you a proud defender of the Second Amendment? Are you tired of your whiny sister-in-law's liberal tantrums about the need for more gun control? <laughs> Are you infuriated with government gun grabbers trying to strip you of your God-given right to own a nuclear bazooka? Well, my fellow patriot, it's time for a SmackDown. SmackDown. In our free 2AD SmackDown debate guide, you'll discover how to win any gun control argument armed with three questions. That's right. Just ask these three simple questions and watch as that smug little smile disappears from their little face of even the most ignorant know-it-all liberal. Plus, you'll discover easy, fact-based, can't-lose, crybaby comebacks for the most common myths, misinformation, and outright lies. Like, gun shows are the criminal's flea market. Countries with tighter gun control have lower crime rates. Banning guns protects our children. More control keeps guns out of the hands of crazy people. And a whole lot more. Arm yourself now with the ultimate argument winner by claiming your free copy of 2AD SmackDown. Visit www.2adsmackdown.com. That's the number two, adsmackdown.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with Peyton Quinn of StressShooting.com, and we're talking about the legal responsibilities that you have in being able to defend yourself in a court of law should you ever be forced to defend yourself in your home against a brutal attack. Now, 
Peyton, I've noticed a lot of court cases lately of citizens who have been put on trial for using force when it was considered unnecessary by the authorities. Now, a lot of these cases have come about because the victim perhaps could have done more to avoid the threat than what they did. What is the legal system's views on whether the use of force was considered avoidable? And can you share your own examples for our listeners so that they can understand when a threat may be considered avoidable and an example of when it could be seen as unavoidable and require the legal use of force? Okay. Understand that we're talking about outside your home or premises under your control, like your office or if you run a store and you're so we're, we're talking about outside of the home or outside, because a whole different set of rules, and you have much greater protection when you're in your home uh, than when you're out on the street or in public. Okay. You, the law requires you to avoid the confrontation. If the district attorney, the prosecutor, can show that you could have avoided it altogether, it uh, weakens your self-defense claim dramatically. Uh, let me give you an example. Okay. Suppose you're with your wife in the city, and, you're, and you walk past some guys, unsavory people, maybe gang members, and there's six or seven of them, and you walk to your car, and as you are, they're catcalling to you, hey, she ought to know a real man, us, okay, something like that. And then you're on the other side of the street, you... Your wife's in the passenger seat. You're on the other side of the car about to get in. And they say, you better run now because if you're there when we get across the street, we're going to kill you. Well, actually, you're not justified in using force because the it's not immediately actionable and it's not uh, you can escape. All you have to do is get in your car and drive off. You see what I mean? Yeah. You can escape with reasonable expectation of safety, then the law requires you to do that. So if you got pissed off, pulled out your gun, and started shooting at them because of their verbal um, insults and threats, well, you'd be guilty of a probably voluntary manslaughter and you'd go to prison. Now, what about something where um, a situation might be considered unavoidable where you are justified? Uh, well, uh, again, the person pulls a knife. He's closer than he's close enough to you, closer than say twenty feet or twenty-three feet or twenty-five feet, and you know how close he can, how quickly he can close that distance from either training or academic study or experience. That is, you know that when the incident occurred, well, you're justified because your life is in an immediate danger, and uh, unless you could somehow escape and not shoot him or justified in shooting him because he's running towards you, closing the distance. He has a lethal weapon, and you know how dangerous it can be. You know, Peyton, whether or not someone feels their life is threatened to the point that they take action and even potentially use deadly force to protect themselves, it's really very subjective. I mean, one of the main, I would say almost one of the most important legal arguments that can bolster someone's case, though, is what you've called and you've told me before is called disparity of force. So can you explain to our listeners what this term means and give us an example of a scenario that may be looked at as illegal use of force in a jury's eyes and one that would be considered justified based upon disparity of force? 
Okay, disparity of force uh, means just what you would think. Let's say there's more than one person, uh, two or even three people, and they're all threatening you to kick your ass. Uh, well, three people to your one is disparity of force. Therefore, uh, it might be justified for you to step away and draw your weapon as a deterrent. Another classic disparity of force, to my knowledge, every state considers that a man has a disparity of force over a woman. So actually, the law is not totally equal here. They assume a woman, a woman can get away with self-defense acts that you would have more difficulty in getting away with because there's always a disparity of force there assumed by the law uh, if she's attacked by a man. Now, even, even if there's only one guy, but he's 6'2 and pumped like Conan the Barbarian, full of muscle, and you're 145 pounds, there's disparity of force there. So you might be justified in uh, drawing a weapon, etc. Uh, a no disparity of force. That's that's more difficult to give an example of, but uh, I think that sort of ties into the guy says, "Oh yeah, you son of a bitch, let's go outside and settle it." The challenge, you accept that challenge. You're both about the same age, weight, and everything else. No weapons are involved. Uh, first, you've lost all claim to a self-defense claim when you accepted the challenge. Well, and more to the point to that, you didn't feel like there, if you accepted a challenge, you didn't feel like there was any disparity of force there. I mean, if it was somebody who was 400 pounds of solid muscle, you probably wouldn't say, yeah, man, let's go take it outside. Because you, you know, you would, you would know that there's a disparity of force there and you wouldn't accept the challenge. Peyton, what would you say is the number one biggest mistake that people make when they have used deadly force to defend themselves that could potentially land them in prison for taking life, even if it's the life of someone who threatened or attacked them first? That's easy. The biggest mistake people make is talking to the police at the scene of the incident and trying to explain why they did what they did, why they used uh, force, lethal or otherwise. A quick example, classic one, um, hockey dad. He goes, uh, he takes his kid to the hockey rink practice. Uh, he sees that the uh, hockey coach is allowing what's called high sticking, using the stick as a weapon. He tells the coach, hey, what? Uh, why don't you stop the high sticking? Coach says, hey, this is hockey. If you don't like it, too bad, you know. All right. Uh, then uh, he, that's not acceptable to him. He tells his kid, go into the dressing room, get undressed. You're not going to play hockey here. So he goes, now remember, under adrenal stress, time, your sense of time changes. Things seem much longer, uh, moving slow motion even. The, the, the coach comes off the ice and starts verbally berating and pushing at the hockey dad. Uh then a manager comes out and says, look, why don't you go out and wait in the car for your son to come out? So he does. He goes out the car, he waits, but then he thinks, why did my kid come out yet? He goes back in to get his kid. The co hockey coach then comes up to him and attacks him, kicking him with his ice skates, etc. Uh, 
there's a fight. He hit the hockey dad, who was larger than the hockey coach, hits him, falls down dead. The cop comes. So this is the important part. There were no questions of fact, really, when the trial was held. Everybody told the same story, pretty much, as a witness. But the policeman comes on the scene, and he says, what happened here? It looks like you outweigh him by 100 pounds. The hockey dad, under the pressure, says, and trying to explain himself, says, hey, he wasn't afraid of me, and I wasn't afraid of him. Now, if you weren't afraid, then you have no claim to self-defense. Those words alone at the scene of the incident convicted the hockey dad and sent him to prison. So what should you do if you use deadly force, even if it's like in a home invasion or something like that? When the police arrive, what's the step-by-step of what you should say or do when they arrive? It's pretty simple. Here's what I would do and what I have done. Uh, I would I would just say something which would be true. If I used any violence at all, there was no alternative. So I'll say, he was going to cut me, or he was going to kill me. I was afraid for my life, or I thought he was going to kill me. Yeah, I swore he was like going to kill me. I but knew I was nothing, dead. Nothing, no no detail. Just, just get across that you thought he was going to kill you. Yeah. I don't, uh, I, I don't, I can't say anything more until I have my attorney present. Yeah. And in my case, I might even point out that it was actionable. Look at that knife on his hip, or look at that knife on his hand, or look at that gun on the ground. Yeah. Now, point. let me tell you a trick cops will do. It's illegal, but they do it. They know that people get more talkative once they're in the police car driving to the police station. So they might ask you some questions. Don't answer them. Once you invoke your right to be silent, don't talk to them, don't engage them in conversation. And legally, they're not even supposed to ask you anything. Good point. Peyton, I mean, and everybody listen. I mean, as you can see from all of, from all these different tests that the court kind of applies to to your self defense argument, they're not all to be taken, you know, one by one. They're actually collective. So somebody might have, um, it might be actionable that they can attack you. Like they do have a knife, so that they could carry out a threat of cutting you. But if they're across the street or across the parking lot, and you can get in your car. Then it wasn't. Then it was avoidable on your part, and so it's not legal self-defense. So each one of these has to be taken together. And it's not its not all-encompassing, So, which is why we say uh, Peyton's course really is one of the most realistic you'll ever go to. So Peyton, thanks so much for taking some time to share your experience with us today. I mean, these are People really need to understand these are critical concepts, and people really need to understand that not only to protect themselves and those they love, but to do it legally and avoid going to prison for their actions. So uh, so great stuff. Again, everyone, I highly recommend going to check out Peyton's website and look and see when you can attend his training camps. I've been to them. They're absolutely amazing. Um, everybody that went to that from our ISCQC organization loved it and uh, thought it was the best course they'd ever been to. So definitely go check it out. You can find out more about his website and his training at www.stressshooting.com. And until our next broadcast, train hard, stay safe, prepare now. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. 
You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.